Okay, this week I wanted, I kind of was preparing something else from Acts and then I, I really felt that I needed to, to um, just trying to listen to God, I guess, change tack a little bit. And, and I want to speak today from Psalm 91 because as I watch the news and I've had some people ring me during the week with concerns and, um, and I think there's a lot of fear. Would you say that at the moment there is a lot of fear out there, not just in our country, but globally? And if you're aware of things going on around the world, you'd have to say, yeah, there's some, there's some big things happening in our world at the moment. And so I want us to spend some time sitting under the teaching of an ancient song, an ancient psalm. This is a magnificent psalm, Psalm 91. This is an ancient song which speaks with great potency into the issues of our time. This, I believe, is truly a psalm to live by. This is a psalm which we can build a life around. And in it, there are three speakers. As we listen to this, this psalm, I want you to realise there are three speakers, three voices, in a sense, within the psalm. The, the, first, the first voice is... I guess, representative of a person who is under threat, under threat of, of great attack, someone who is desperately seeking shelter and refuge, someone who is scared. And this is someone who is making a statement of belief, which becomes for us, I guess, a summary of the whole psalm. He says, this is verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. You know, statements of belief are important. They really are. We, we, we make these kind of statements all the time. As a church, we have a, a whole series of statements which clearly lay out, at Lakes Baptist Church, this is what we believe. This is what we believe about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about humanity, about sin, about, well, a whole lot of things. You know, when we sign a contract for a mortgage on a new home, we're really saying, I believe, I believe I will be able to make the payments. It's a statement of belief. I believe I'll be able to make the repayments and pay off this money that you're loaning me. Well, when we enter into the covenant of marriage, we're making another statement of belief. We make promises to each other and then as we reciprocate the promise given, we are declaring I believe you. Someone makes a promise. Our husband or our wife makes a promise to us. And then when we reciprocate, we are saying, I believe you. I believe you will live up to the promise as I will. The opening statement of this psalm is one of those kind of statements. He who dwells, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The second voice, second voice who is thought to be, say, a priest or a prophet, then declares to the person making this first statement, this statement of belief in the Almighty, he declares to him a whole raft of benefits and blessings which flow as a direct result of putting his trust in God. And the third voice, right at the end of the psalm, the third voice is the Lord himself, Yahweh. 
From verse 14 onward to the end of the psalm, God himself speaks, making the most amazing promises to the person making the original statement of faith. It's almost like a, a couple getting married and one declares it at the beginning of the psalm and then at the end of the psalm, God himself says, yes, I will do this. And he declares, verse 14, he says, Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him, I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. Now, the Psalms were not originally read. Most people couldn't read. They they came from a, a long oral tradition. These were songs and poetry. And in keeping with that tradition... I've put together a video of this psalm. Now, I wrote to Sons of Korah and obtained permission from them to use their version for the soundtrack. So what I want us to do together is just spend a few moments and sit under the psalm, this ancient song that we have in the Word of God. So let's, let's spend some time in Psalm 91. Say your 
If you believe those words are the, the very word of God to you, that is the most extraordinarily wonderful psalm, is it not? It really is. Those words are so, so intimate, so personal, so tender, aren't they? They are words to 
to live by, words to build your life around. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You know, the idea of dwelling, the idea of dwelling with God and God in turn dwelling with us is actually central to the scriptures. It really is. And in fact, sometimes I wonder because people talk about how we go to be with God. It's like, no, hang on, the Bible says God comes to live with us. That's what it's all about, is God has now made his dwelling place with us. You know, where you live, where you dwell, really matters. It makes all the difference to the quality of your life, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, Louise and I have lived in a whole range of places over the years that we've been married. We've been fortunate enough to live on a, a 25-acre property with 360-degree views of the, the, the Blue Mountains and out to Oberon, and it was, it was a spectacular place to live for a time. But we also know what it's like to live in a place that I can only describe as a hellhole. I mean, honestly, I won't even tell you where it was, but I remember this one house... It was hot, it was breathless, it was tiny, it was flea-ridden, it was remote. In other words, it took a long time to get anywhere from there. And there were lots of neighbours, and they were noisy and violent. And at night we were constantly on edge about what was happening outside, and we never really felt safe, and all we could think about was getting out of there. Thankfully, we only had to endure this particular dwelling for a couple of months. The point is this, one's dwelling is everything. And in saying that, I am not suggesting for a moment that we all go out and upgrade our homes. Please hear that. I think, however, that God knows that a person's dwelling place is a very important part of life. Our God is a good God. Amen? Yes. And he always gives us the very best. God always acts in truth. He is truth. The truth is, there is no dwelling place. There is no dwelling place in all of the universe which compares with God himself. God is a good God and he always gives us the absolute best and he always tells the truth. So he's just declaring the truth when he says, there is no better place for you to dwell than in me. God gives us himself as our dwelling place. In fact, he comes and dwells with us. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word, which is Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And Jesus said, this is John 10, verse 27, he said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. You know, sheep only know and feel safe when the shepherd who dwells with them is with them. He is with them day and night, protecting and guiding them. 
I don't know if you've ever tried to catch a sheep. If that sheep doesn't know you, I tell you what, it is jolly hard to catch that sheep. But if the sheep know you, if they know you, they will flock around you. I'm sure I've told you the story of an old guy, an old bloke who was 96 and he was born on a property out on the Mudgee Road. And when I was living up there, I was looking for some work and anyway, Rotary kind of put the two of us together and said, this guy needs to sell the farm. So I was employed to bring in all the stuff that was all over the farm. One of the first jobs I did is I was asked to go up and bring the, the flock of sheep in. It's about 200 sheep. Tell you what, those sheep didn't want to cooperate. And I found out later, I did drive them a little hard. And uh, he was pretty mad at me. I put one of them into early labour. Anyway, <laughs> what amazed me was these sheep who wouldn't let me get anywhere near them. When they saw this old guy who said to me, I just keep them because I like the sound. <laughs> He's born on the property, been there all his life, 100 years almost. And they flocked to him. Who's this terrible bloke? They went running to him. See, they wanted to dwell with their shepherd, with him. And sheep are like that. It says in Psalm 27, For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will keep me safe in his dwelling, which we know from the other verses is himself. Is himself. So that's the first voice in the psalm. The person who is under threat, the person who's scared yet declares the Lord is their refuge, their fortress, the one in whom they trust. Second voice. Remember, this is thought to be a, like a priestly figure, a priestly figure responding to the words of the first speaker, who then expands on the benefits of placing one's trust in the Lord. He says, verse 3, he says, Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Verse 3, it's an important verse in understanding this psalm. The, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to nick some of your tea, Shan. That's not tea. <laughs> Yes, it is. The fowler's snare. Verse 3, very important in understanding this psalm. The fowler's snare, it appears a number of times throughout the scriptures. And it seems to become this kind of like a metaphor, an image for the, the schemes of those who hate and resist those who choose to put their trust in God. It's kind of like some things that are happening in our world today. The fowler's snare. The, the deadly pestilence, on the other hand, covers diseases and plague which God sends on his enemies and as judgment on his unfaithful people. Do you see how this verse is a key to understanding the psalm? There are two quarters from which hardship comes. The first is from sinful people who desire to ensnare and destroy the godly. The other, and this may come as quite a shock to you, some of you, is actually the judgment of God himself. I mean, the supreme example, obviously, being the plagues brought against Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the time of Moses. In Exodus 9, have a look at this. It says, God says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. 
Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For boy, now I could, have, I could stretch out my hand and, and struck you and your people with a plague that, you would have, that would have wiped you off the earth. And the threat of God's wrath is not only against the Egyptians. In, in Leviticus, in the great passage where God outlines his law, he says this to Israel. Now, as you listen to this, I want you to just think about something. Today, we live in an age, in a culture where a pervading kind of idea is that every one of us has a right to create whatever we want. Do our own thing. Do whatever we want. And a pervading idea is that we may sculpt our own God. We, we may create our own God. I was talking to someone during the week and they, they were talking about some of the decisions that this lady had made and she had decided to abort her child. And we were just talking about what this meant. It was interesting that she sent me a message and she said, my God forgives me for what I've done. My God is, has no problem with what I've done. I'm not sure about your God. Now, I'm not saying for a moment the God can't forgive her for what she did. But I do want to say this. Any God who we make up in our own mind, who I might conjure up, that I might imagine, is simply not worth following. That's a petty little God. And when we do that, they end up looking like us, <laughs> these gods we come up with. The only way we can really work this out is say, we need revelation, don't we? We, we need God to reveal himself to us. And that's what the word of God is all about. You think God's oh, one book. No, no, it's many, many books written over a vast period of time that weaves together incredibly. And people have felt, no, this seems to be the very words of God. And then Jesus came and he declared, I am the son of God. And he, he proved that he was by rising from the dead. And he endorsed the scriptures. The Old Testament said, yeah, they are my words. They are the word of God. So we need to be very careful that we make sure we know who the God is we're believing in. And I want to say to you today, the God I worship... The God that we worship here is the God revealed in Jesus. The God revealed in Jesus. Remember, Jesus is not like God. We need to understand that. Jesus is not like God. God is like Jesus. That's the difference. Because otherwise you make up your own version of God. You go, oh, Jesus is kind of like that. No, no, we've got to take the Bible and we've got to look at it and say, what does this t tell us about God? And even if it's uncomfortable. Now, the threat of God's wrath is not only against the Egyptians. In Leviticus, in this great passage where God outlines his law, he says this to Israel. He says, but if you will not listen to me, 
and carry out all these commands. And if you reject my decrees, my laws, abhor my laws, and fail to carry out all my commands, and so violate my covenant, the promise I've made to you, we made together, then I will do this to you. This is God speaking. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. You don't make up a God like that, do you? See, the psalmist recognises the reality that there is a very real danger from evil people who plot against those who honour God. But he also knows that the most terrifying threat of all comes from God himself. I mean, nothing compares with the wrath of God against sin and rebellion. And on this very point, Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's what Jesus said. Don't worry about men. They can just kill your body. Worry about God. Worry about the wrath of God. See, the priest is saying to this man or this woman, when you choose to make the most holy your dwelling, when you choose to trust in him, you will be protected, not only from the schemes of evil men who wish to ensnare and destroy you, but, and I want you to get this, you will be protected from the wrath of God himself. You see that? When you make the Holy One your dwelling place, you're actually protected from the wrath of God. He then gives us an image, which I guess the first hearers saw more often than we might. He said, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. We don't deal that much with birds. We kind of do if you're out on a a bicycle and you're dealing with Maggie's about a month ago, right? Birds can be pretty angry. Birds can be fiercely protective. A couple of years ago, we were all out at Nunes, right? We're out there camping, a whole lot of us. And there's this kind of grassy hill and up the top was this toilet block up there and so I had my push bike there and I'd, I rode up to the toilet and on the way back you're not pedalling or anything you're just rolling down the grassy hill like this okay now there was a pair of ducks that had I don't know five or six ducklings now the ducklings weren't this big the ducklings were about that big they're almost fully grown but they're following the parents around and Renee's smiling because she was there. She knows where this is going. Anyway, the, the birds are just, they're in the campsite all the time. They're walking around and everything was fine. So I'm coming down the hill. 
I'm not paying a lot of attention to the birds. I'm kind of looking at all, making sure I don't run into Gracie or Lily or one of the little kids. So I'm coming down the hill and I guess I look like a big bird flying down the hill on my mountain bike. And it was like at the last minute, I'm going fairly fast, I realised that the male, this, this male duck, what do you call him? A, a drake. The drake was somewhat peeved. And he's standing like this with his wings out with his ducklings behind him, which is actually a big group of birds, right? There's about eight birds. Oh, this, and I couldn't divert. I thought, I'm just thinking right up to the last minute, they will fly away. The babies flew away. The drake did not. He stood there to protect his young until I rode straight over him. There were feathers everywhere, weren't there, Renee? I carefully attended to this bird, looking for it, to care for it. Renee wanted to eat it. But... <laughs> am I telling the truth, Renee? Yes. You'll be pleased to know, after a little bit of care, the bird flew off and it was okay. The point I'm just making is that this is an image from the scriptures that we don't see very often. But every now and then you see it. When in the scriptures it says, he will cover you with his wings, right? Don't think about a fluffy little chicken going like this. Think about a really mad drake. <laughs> He's going, you will not pass. <laughs> That's what it's like. And then he says, You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. You know, for ancient people, those kind of four lines there pretty much summed up their fears. They really did. The terror of the night time was a big deal. Without modern lighting, nights would have indeed been times of great fear, whether it be from wild animals or marauding gangs or desert storms. Nights were full of fear. The arrow that flies by day is clearly about an attack from another nation and pestilence and plague, as I said, refers to God's wrath. The psalmist then steps it up saying, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand but it will not come near you you'll only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked if you make the most high your dwelling even the Lord who is my refuge then no harm will befall you no disaster will come near your tent now at this point Many God-fearers over the centuries must have started to think, as many of you may well be thinking right now, well, it hasn't worked for me. It hasn't. It hasn't worked for me. I placed my trust in God decades ago. I made the most high my dwelling place. My marriage still fell apart. That psychopath at work still had me fired. My mother still died of cancer. We still had that terrible car accident. I still all lost that money on the stock market. I, I still, I, I still, 
I steal. Is this psalm just a pack of lies? Is this psalm a pack of lies? Is this a load of nonsense? Is this, as someone once said to me, God just mucking with your head, torturing us, playing games with your mind? See, I think there's a real danger of seeing this psalm as being descriptive of day-to-day life now. You know, I think there's no doubt that God does protect us. And if you actually think about it, I see no reason for Satan to allow any Christian to live. Satan would kill every single Christ follower now if he could. So when you think about that, you think, wow, God is protecting us, I'm sure, more than we would ever believe. The fact is, though, bad stuff happens to good people. Bad stuff does happen to good people. And somehow we need to try to make sense of these words of Scripture in light of that, somehow. Do they have any relevance for us today or not? Well, I think verse 8 gives us a clue. Verse 8 is very helpful. He says, "You you will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. So I think ultimately there are many layers to this psalm. And this part is definitely speaking about the end times when God finally deals with wickedness and sin forever. As I said before, there is a sense that only Jesus can truly sing and pray the Psalms as the one true Israelite, the one true King of Israel who fulfills all of the requirements of the law of holiness. But I want you to see this. Jesus, therefore, is the one who inherits all the promises of this Psalm. This psalm is actually written for Jesus. Jesus is the one who inherits all the promises of this psalm. And then in turn, those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ are brought into this inheritance. In Romans 8, we read these words. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. See, what is truly amazing is that at the same time, it is Christ who ultimately shields us from the wrath of God against sin and rebellion. Because Jesus took upon himself the full force of the wrath of God when he died on the cross. See, Christ is in every way our shelter and our dwelling place. So we can truly pray, Lord, protect us from this present danger, knowing that even if we die, even if we die, we live because we are safe in Christ. 
You see, Jesus has taken upon himself the ultimate nighttime terror, the ultimate pestilence, death. He has taken death upon himself and defeated it, rising from the dead, so that we who are in Christ may live in him eternally. And this is precisely where the psalmist then heads. He says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will, tread, you will trample the great lion and the serpent. You know, I think it's interesting that when Jesus was about to start his, his earthly ministry, he'd been working as a carpenter for about, you know, until he's 30. So maybe 15 years or so, 20 years, Jesus works as a carpenter. He then, he feels God calling him into ministry, to this ministry that he would have, we know, for about three years. He's baptised in the Jordan by John the Baptist. He then heads out into the wilderness for 40 days where he's tempted by the devil. What I think is interesting is that Satan tempted Jesus by suggesting that he make a public demonstration of the angel's care by throwing himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Satan quoted this very psalm to Jesus. When Satan thinks, what can I throw at him? What can I tempt the Son of God with? Satan goes back through the scriptures and he comes up with this psalm, with this verse. And Jesus rejected the idea of testing God. He would have no part of it. And I think the fact that Satan chose this scripture to throw at Jesus points to the power and the truth of these words. These are words to build your life around. We then move to the conclusion of the psalm where God himself speaks. These words are truly beautiful. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him. For he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. You know, for the ancient Hebrews, they could barely hope to believe in a life after death. Even King David. Even King David says, God, will I praise you from the grave? Obviously not. So you'd better hurry up and save me now. At best, they thought, oh, we might have this kind of dreamy existence. For them, the ultimate blessing of God was found in a long life. You see, in the fullness of time, God had so much more that they could have ever dreamt or hoped for. See, in Christ, they would receive a type of life which is eternal. The type of life that God has. Dwelling with God forever. Please don't misunderstand me. If you are in Christ... His spirit lives within you right now. You have eternal life right now. It's not something you'll receive later on. 
You have it now. But there will be a final consummation of, of all things, the final judgment and the outpouring of God's wrath against sin and rebellion. Revelation 22 paints a, a glorious picture of this day for us to look forward to. Let's read it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. We need some of those leaves today, don't we? The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. I would encourage you this week to maybe spend some time just reading Psalm 91. Just read it and kind of soak in it. Ponder the wonder, the glory of these ancient words of God and what they mean for those who are in Christ. Let's pray. Living God, we thank you for the beauty of these ancient words. And Lord, we thank you that you have provided everything we need now, tomorrow, and forevermore. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the shield who ultimately, ultimately protects us against death and the wrath of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking that upon yourself in our, in our place. Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray for our world at the moment, a world where there is so much, so much tension, disunity. Someone said during the week on Facebook, I hate, I'm hating all the hate. <laughs> and, uh, and I guess you must be there saying, what have you done? What have you done? What have you done? We've made a mess of things, Lord, but you stepped into the mess. And because of that, we know that ultimately you will make all things right. So we would pray this morning, come, Lord Jesus, come. and Make everything right again. Lord, I pray a blessing upon your people now in Jesus' name. Amen.